Hello, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Wise Content Creates Wealth. You have heard that content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. This podcast is about understanding how you can make and utilize wise content to improve your financial success and the bottom line of your company. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, and I am a marketing technology expert who has built a multi-million dollar company, and I'm also an award-winning content producer. My company is Galileo Tech Media, a leader in providing wise content and smart SEO. Our wise content is content that incorporates semantic science, behavioral science, AI, and data to make content that converts better and gets better rankings. And today, we're going to dive a bit into scaling wise content management uh, with a very experienced guest. But first, I want to mention my favorite tool of the week, fireflies.com. This is a voice assistant for meetings. Once I hooked it up to my calendar, it found all my meetings that had a conference call link in it. Like, for example, like a Zoom or a Google Meet. And then when the call happens, it logs into the meeting uh, uh, and it does some pretty great stuff. It records the call. It transcribes the call. It then sends the call recording and transcription to you in just a few minutes after the call. And then you can log into Fireflies and collaborate with teammates on marking up the call for important moments. It allows your assistants to quickly find the takeaways and actions uh, that you've listed in the call. It allows a quick searching for information in the call. And I love being able to find a sentence and click on that sentence and then hear the conversation from that point on. So I can quickly remember what the heck's going on and what I said, because I am not good at taking notes and I'm not necessarily good at remembering um, all the things that uh, I'm supposed to do from a call. I say, I'm, I, I have a great mind, but I don't have a great mind for management. And you know, this kind of AI stuff really improves my abilities. It's also, I think, and I'm finding it very useful for content marketing. For example, I have it log into my podcasts and also our webinars. We then can use the transcription as raw content on the video placement in YouTube or on our sites. We can also give the transcript to a writer to make articles and posts from the information in the meeting. Um, you can, you know, I, a good example is we did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago for, uh, you know, overcoming obstacles to making a decision. And the uh, David, Dr. David Popple mentioned five, um, five, uh, five different as- aspects that had to be overcome that made a great TikTok video that got the most uh, views that I ever had because it was very fast, five tips, but I was able to go to that and pull the information quickly because it really wasn't written up anywhere on the web. I would not have been able to do it without that transcription. Um, I also send, I also, we can also take nuggets from those transcriptions and send them out on social media or email and to raise awareness and buzz. 
and I can make it available to other participants in the call so they can do the same thing easily. They can, thus making more people involved in the after event promotion. It also integrates with a number of products, including Zapier. So it can do things like automatically send the meeting notes to my assistant. Uh, if I don't remember to put her on the uh, on the, the invite, she wouldn't get it. But this way, I make sure it's always sent to her so that she can then do what is ever appropriate that, uh, that we're wanting to do. I can also upload audio recordings that are not part of that weren't recorded by Fireflies, and it will do the transcription as well. And the best part of this is the basic service is just $120 a year. That's uh, an incredible, incredible price for the amount of value that we're getting from it. So I recommend it highly um, so far. I'm, I mean, I've been using it for a month or so. Uh, and it's just proved uh, incredible in terms of, you know, uh, automating my content existence, especially my audio and video content. So anyway, uh, talking about content management, that was on the micro scale. We're also going to talk about a very large scale um, in the thousands of managing content. And, and my guest today is somebody I'm very familiar with, and she's also an expert in scaling content and content management. It's Erin Miller, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Galileo Tech Media. She is an experienced and highly successful digital marketing professional with more than 20 years experience in strategic search engine optimization content marketing, inbound marketing, and influencer marketing. She sort of has all the bases covered, and we depend upon her uh, quite critically in Galileo Tech Media. So hello, Aaron. I think you're on mute. How are you, Joseph? Fine. How's uh, things going down there in Charleston? Good, good. It feels like spring. Feels right. like spring and looks like spring. Everything's covered with pollen. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. So thank you, you for having me. Oh, uh, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, so you grew up in a small southern town like me, right? I did. So we both had journeys, I would say, to uh, where we are today. What was your journey to become an expert on large-scale management projects? Well, it's probably not what I imagined uh, growing up in Pelzer, South Carolina, which is near Clemson University. Um, I went to a very small high school where we all knew each other. My parents graduated from the same high school as my sister and I did. So we all knew everybody. And so I was excited to get away to a city where no one knew me. It wasn't that far. It was an hour and a half away. But for a small, in a small town, that feels very far. Um, so all through college, I worked for a nonprofit association that offered educational opportunities for school administrators. And so I managed their communications and event planning. And so I always enjoyed taking something that was very complicated with lots of moving parts and creating efficiencies around it to make it more smooth to make sure um, uh, that we had exactly the right speakers with the right topics and the right people were in the room to be able to take advantage of those content opportunities. So that was my first uh, soiree around efficiencies. And I would say my entire career has been around and, and probably home life too, <laughs> creating efficiencies <laughs> and processes. Um, so when you can create a process that allows you to optimize um, 
or you, when, when you can optimize the process, it gives you the ability to scale. And with scale, then that content that you're creating becomes even more wise because you more people see it and are able to interact with it. So that was my first um, experience in efficiencies was uh, in college. Wow, that's cool. So, I mean, we'll talk more about your, your journey after that in a little bit, but, you know, um, I'm always interested a little bit in the, in the transitions. You, you worked for a long time in Washington, D.C., but now you're in Charleston. And I think it's critical right. to our story as a company uh, about why you went to Charleston. How did that transition happen? Well, the more interesting story really is my journey from South Carolina to D.C. Okay, um, well, tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that first. So um, I had uh, lived in Columbia, South Carolina for several years after college, and all of my friends had gotten married and moved on, and I was still, I think, 22 and decided I'm ready for a new change of scenery, moved to Washington, D.C. I knew one person, um, the person who moved with me. We got a temporary job um, processing applications for a scholarship program, but then I quickly was hired at an agency there. Um, but it was definitely a, um, a, a country mouse meets the big city type of situation. So um, I got a lot of comments on my accent, had to understand how to use the metro, um, all that sort of thing. So that was an interesting transition, but I always knew that eventually um, I wanted to move back south. So um, my husband and I and our three kids made that move about six years ago. And when we did, I was looking for a lot more flexibility in the way that I work uh, and a new challenge, which eventually led me to Galileo Tech Media. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was lucky coincidence. You know, we, uh, really Galileo is known for the nomadic uh, workforce and lots of flexibility of when, how, and where you work. So how do you like, you like that flexible lifestyle, right? And it, I love it. I, I don't think I could ever go back to anything else. And, um, you know, in all honesty, Joseph, when we worked together at the beginning, I don't think I was aware of all of that flexibility. I think when you come from an agency world, you're so used to um, those set number of hours, that um, responsibility to respond right away to a client and really having your time owned for you. Um, that it was an interesting transition into owning your own time and enjoying that freedom that comes from working with, at a company like Galileo, where um, you, know, you have the freedom to work when you want to work. Um, and, and a lot of times on the projects that you want to work on, so long as deliverables are met and deadlines are met. But it, yeah, it's I, not I, an easy transition into the flexibility, really. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of discipline. That's why it's usually... Ever, the people involved, we you know, it has to be somebody that's very experienced at what they do. Uh, we right. so that's why our whole our whole workforce is is you know very experienced, and essentially everybody's an entrepreneur for time or for uh, you know for re resources, um, and you know, and and so that kind of network is made for you know uh, flexibility. I think. Um, so uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to break. We're going to jump into some of the big scale things that you've done. All right. Sounds good. Hello, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy. I'm uh, uh, back with the Wise Content Creates Wealth podcast with my guest, 
Aaron Miller. So Aaron, you know, it's been about, what, I guess almost seven years since I, I actually looked at your resume. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> when I was reviewing it, you know, I, I found some interesting things, you know, besides being, um, yeah, you had a nice stint with TIG Global, which was a big travel, you know, travel marketing agency. But you ended up you were you you were a director of partner partner programs for Ziplist at Condé Nast, where you maintain relationships with over nine hundred recipe blog authors. Now, what kind of job was that? Uh, that was a job that you didn't want to go to hungry, <laughs> looking at um, <laughs> looking at uh, food and recipes all day. Although I do remember uh, at one point being uh, in a pregnant one of my pregnancies, not liking the job so much that it made me nauseous. But I was hired at Ziplist um, right about the time Condé Nast acquired them, and Ziplist was a plug-in that could be a free plugin to be used by food and recipe bloggers. They could input their uh, recipe ingredients and instructions into the plugin, and then you can easily convert it into a shopping list. So if you followed multiple bloggers, you could have recipes saved from multiple sources in one spot uh, and could create a shopping list for that. And so they hired me to streamline, streamline the onboarding process because at the time of the acquisition, we'd gotten a lot more um, visibility and onboarding new partners was just taking too long. They had a backlog. And so um, I worked with a, a technical resource there to decide what could be handled internally, what needed to be outsourced externally, what were the best systems that we could get these partners in the door as quickly as possible so that we could monetize their pages. Um, and so uh, it became um, an ability for Ziplist to make money because of monetizing the recipe pages, but also the food bloggers as well. So there's a lot of education involved around um, you know, where, uh, how, to, how to upload the plugin, how to best use it. And um, then you know, was there data available that could help them know what recipes were, um, were most popular and could bring in the most uh, revenue for the partner. So what kind of, you know, so this is your first experience really of scaling relationships uh, and you had to get more engagement with the tools, which was the recipe pop, uh, box and, and shopping list. Um, so what, what did, what, what kind of, what, how did you develop the processes and what were, what did you use? Uh, we needed to develop a process that could be replicated over and over and over again, because uh, there were not a lot of variations among how uh, a food blogger would add the plugin to their site. It really just depended on the platform. And at that point, I believe it was WordPress and um, one other um, platform that most bloggers commonly use. So um, it was first a lot about relationship building. Um, this was a, was, um, a new type of technology and uh, a food blogger was handing over a lot of the um, handing over the keys to the castle, basically, to have us help and implement the plugin. And so they had to trust us. Those food blogs were, in a lot of cases, their livelihood. And in some cases, you know, they're creative people. They are cooks and chefs and recipe authors. And so technology and business may not have been um, their favorite thing to focus on. And so it was about building a relationship of trust that we cared about their business and we wanted to help them grow their business and scale the content that they'd created um, and then about um, you know, enabling them to follow the processes that we created. Asana was very new back then. We utilized Asana to um, create a checklist. Asana. Uh, Asana, A-S-A-N-A, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, yep. cool. Yep, yep. 
similar to Basecamp or Monday, you know, project management tool. So um, it was the same process replicated over and over again, but with a lot of oversight to figure out where are the um, bottlenecks, where could we improve? Maybe if we created um, a different sort of process, could we speed this up? Could we bring more food bloggers in? That sort of thing. So it was always creating a process and then always reviewing the process and optimizing it. Well, so I mean, the question that pops in my mind is that over 900 people, how, uh, how do you establish trust with over 900 people? Well, I guess the good and bad thing with that particular group is that they are a tight knit community. And so if a food blogger had a great experience with our brand, then that would go a long way. Of course, the opposite is true. Also, if they had a bad experience, felt that the plugin had broken their site or they saw a drop in traffic or that sort of thing, that would impact the relationship as well. But um, there were um, some folks on our team who really were responsible for those relationships who were food bloggers themselves. So really understood from a, diff a different point of view about what was important to their business um, and what sort of aspects of the plugin could be deal breakers or would be very important, that sort of thing. So being very responsive to creators and understanding their needs is pretty critical, right? It was, it was. And trying to um, listen, right? Like you're, you're saying, sort of take a step back and understand their point of view as a creator and content owner of the um, ownership and real love and energy that goes into what they've created and how they want to protect that. Yeah, I think that in general, that, that, that establishment of trust is actually an important thing. Uh, we did, we've had to deal with that, you know, Galileo. Um, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, you, um, I, I read you, you, one of the, you, one of the accomplishments you had there was turning data into actionable tasks. Uh, and I was wondering what kind of data and what kind of tasks? <laughs> Well, we had um, limited data only because um, we didn't have Google Analytics access to all of the food bloggers' websites, but we did have some data as to how the tools were used. And it was always a goal to get more clicks and views into the tools. So we wanted more people adding to their recipe box, more people adding to their shopping list. And so um, I began an endeavor to understand well, in what situations do more people click and in what situations do more people engage. So we looked at a broad range of, um, to see what placement worked better. Does it work better to have, um, add to shopping cart and add to list in the main navigation or as buttons or above the fold or below the fold or, um, as a drop down or in that sort of thing. So um, a lot of testing to determine the best placements and then um, using our relationships to ask bloggers to test what we had found, um, which again required a lot of trust to rearrange their website to test a hypothesis from a vendor they were trusting. Um, and then once we were certain of our hypothesis and, and placement recommendations and rolling those out to the 900 bloggers, which a lot of discussions, a lot of, um, you know, uh, trying to, uh, trying to convince <laughs> to make right. a change to their website to that we expected would improve their revenue. So, um, and were, there, of, were there any, any important tools in that process that you thought were relevant? Definitely Google relevant? Analytics. Google yeah. Analytics. Google Analytics was the, the primary tool as I recall. Yeah. It still is to this day. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it still is to this day. I mean, we use it all the time. 
So, you know, after uh, Zipless, you stayed with Condé Nast, but now you moved on to director of partner, partner development for the Food Innovation Group. And that expanded your responsibility to over also a thousand influencers with a reach of 291 million consumers. So how did you tackle that job? Well, it was a natural fit for me to move to Condé Nast because they had sunset ziplist at that point. Uh-huh. Um, however, they wanted to maintain the relationship with the ziplist bloggers and continue to monetize the pages, but just in, um, in a different way. And so um, it was a source of comfort to, I think, a lot of the bloggers to know that some of the same staff and team members from ZipList were going to continue along with them, those of us who knew their sites, knew their priorities, knew their audience, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, Condé Nast wanted to be able to include all of those pages of those you know, 1,000 or so food bloggers into their network of advertising to be sold for, for all of their partnerships. Mm-hmm. And so um, as that role evolved, I became more of a um, more, it became more influencer marketing really than partner management. Um, Condé Nast, um, specifically Epicurious and Bon Appetit were starting to do more and more influencer marketing, bringing in brands like Reynolds and Starbucks and uh, Marie's Salad Dressing and that sort of thing who understood the, the potential of working with an influencer with just the right reach. And so it was designing the programs. What would that look like? How many photos? How many blog posts? Um, what should the content be? How much control does the brand want over the content? Um, so designing those programs and then helping to find exactly the right influencer to support to support the brand. So, you know, when I had Kevin and Lee have did it here on earlier and he likened brand and con- branded content to the, the old soap operas back in the day where you oh, know yeah. people knew that the, uh, the, the, the sponsor sponsored it, but the content was a good story. Uh, was that the same sort of thing that you were doing with these with these bloggers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it had to feel organic, um, you know, for the blogger and for the brand. So um, I found that food bloggers, especially those who've been very successful, were very particular about the type of products that they would write about and use and talk mm-hmm. about. So if it wasn't a good fit or didn't fit with their you know nutritional guidelines or dietary restrictions, then it was then it was a no-go. And I think one um, reason our campaigns were successful is because we really did allow a lot of editorial freedom for the Mm -hmm. bloggers who understood, you know, no, my audience won't like it if we talk about this, or they wouldn't like this recipe that you're recommending. I'm going to do it this way. And so I found that really to be the key in successful influencer relationships is to create some guardrails and some efficiencies, but then to trust them to speak to their audience the way they know works so you had to manage scale but it had to be customizable per influencer that must have been an adventure (laughs) there were some i have some interesting stories (laughs) (laughs) well maybe when we come back we can get into some of that all right right. Hello, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Wise Content Creates Wealth podcast with my guest, Aaron Miller, the Chief Operating Officer of Galileo Tech Media, which also happens to be my company. <laughs> um, 
So Aaron, when you uh, moved on from Condé Nast, it was I guess because uh, there was a company called Mediavime that became involved with the influence of marketing of Condé Nast. And then there, you all of a sudden had a responsibility to working with over 3,000 food and lifestyle influencers. And I, I'm still interested in this question of, you know, you have 3,000 uh, highly creative people and you've trying to get branded content out through that channel and they have all sorts of editorial influence. How do you manage those one-to-one -one relationships on scale? Well, um, you know, I, I would say it was, it, it really depends on the, the situation. So it was a lot of, we use a lot of tools like Google Forms and surveys and that sort of thing first to understand in an aggregate what sort of brand opportunities these food bloggers were most interested in. Um, and there were certainly some that rose to the top, food bloggers that were highly um, highly influential, very involved in Mediavine's educational programs and you know, highly collaborative. So there were certainly some that we had very strong relationships with. And, and like I mentioned before, uh, food bloggers are um, a really cool, tight network. They support each other very well. Um, and so uh, when a brand would come along interested in a branded content opportunity with Mediavine, um, once we understood exactly what the specifications were, who their target audience was, what the price range would be, um, what sort of qualifications were around the influencer's reach and that sort of thing, then we would put out a call to the influencers who, who would be interested in this particular program. Um, we may get 100 people interested. We may get five people interested. It really just depended on the opportunity. Um, and then from there, we would begin to... Um, fine tune what the pricing would be, what the offering would be, and then present those options to the brand uh, for their review. Um, and that's a, that the brands were equally particular about the influencer's voice and how the, and who their target customer was and who their readers were because they wanted to make sure that their brand aligned with the influencer's voice just as much as the influencer shared the same concerns to make sure they were partnering with brands that amplified their content in there and their message. Cool. So um, it's a lot like um, uh, they're all sort of individual entrepreneurs that uh, you've got to deal with, right? And uh, you're exactly right. Yeah. You're exactly right. And I think in most instances, we, um, for this type of work, we didn't deal with them on an individual entrepreneur basis until they were selected for the work. Um, uh, because it was such a large, such a large group. There certainly were relationships there and food bloggers that we knew we could count on. We knew were highly responsive and that sort of thing. So I guess, I guess that my, my takeaway from this is actually having good data on every, uh, where the content is, is going to be placed, right? Uh, where the possibility of placing the content is, is to be an, an idea of the likelihood of placing that content and having a process you, you said you did forms and surveys, right? To, to be able to understand who your, your, who your creative is and what they're capable of doing and then the likelihood of them of doing, being a good fit for a project. And that, that requires a lot of knowledge and data, right? It really does. And it also requires the flip side. So as much as it requires that more, um, you know, efficiency-oriented, process-oriented tools type of energy, it also required that, you know, more of a personal touch of conveying that 
you know, you can, you can trust us. We have your best interests. We're here to help you earn money. And we know how important your content is to you. And so I think a key to the brands that we work with, Joseph, and then in my past experiences, you cannot scale without trust and without a relationship. That is, it is an opposite type of energy. Um, I think that you have to really understand and work with, but it is equally important. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that the, to really do well, well content on a scale with branded content and getting high quality content, you just can't go to, I think, one of these websites that provides a, a, a database of freelancers that you can contact to try to make the, make a, make content happen. I, I don't think it happens in a way, you know, that works unless the company that's doing that brings in a person to manage those relationships and understands everybody they contact. Don't you agree? Yeah. I 100% agree. I think that um, in a lot of cases, you get what you pay for. And when you have the ability to create a relationship with a content creator, um, they have a lot more ownership of what they're writing. Like in an instance where, you know, in our business, Joseph, where our writers are writing content for someone else, um, when they get to know the client and are able to have a one-on-one relationship and see one-on-one that they've earned that client's trust, I think that greatly improves not only the quality of the content, but the um, what they're able to provide. You know, if this mm-hmm. work that they enjoy doing, they're willing to do more of it in a lot of instances. They're willing to um, take on one extra blog post in a pinch because the client requires it or uh, give a volume break um, in, in order to help us to secure a deal. So I, I don't think we can underestimate the, human, the humanity of all of this as well. Mm-hmm. What other uh, advice would you give to a brand in making their wise content strategies better? You know, how, well, from that experience, especially in the influencer uh, space, you know, mm-hmm. how to get it better promoted, how to get more, uh, uh, you know, creators w- willing to you know, promote them. What are some of the secrets there? Well, I think that you first have to, as a brand, you have to know what you want. You need to be open to advice. And data and allowing data to um, to pivot your story slightly, but you really have to know what your goals are. What are you really trying to drive? Are you trying to drive thought leadership? Are you trying to drive leads? Are you trying to drive um, collection of email addresses? That sort of thing. And so I think when the brand is clear on their goals and they're clear on who their customer is, they can serve as a really strong leader to a group of content creators because they are so clear on who they are. Yeah. You get into trouble and certainly a um, lack of efficiency when a brand is unclear on those sorts of things. So I would encourage any brand interested in, in beginning a content creation promotion to get really clear on who they are and what their the, the point is before bringing writers. I think that's exactly true. And I think you know, part of the, the intent of this podcast is to explore the fact that that is such an intensive process. And while we've successfully to this day managed it uh, with people, that AI and machine learning type of things and data is going to become a part of that understanding, you know, understanding, you know, who the creators are and what their needs are and understanding your, your own audience and what they need and then trying to find a way to marry up. And I think that, you know, AI and data is going to become a, a part of that even more, though I don't think we're going to escape the human interface for a while. Right. Um, right. Cool. So in 2014, 
you join me in Galileo Tech Media. I don't know why, but <laughs> I know I do. I do. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Nikki Johnson, who was my co-founder at the time, brought you in. You, know, you guys are good That's friends. Right. But uh, you were right. to, to manage the, uh, the SEO and content for around 7,000 hotels at Marriott. It started small, but we quickly grew that business. We did. So... What, what what do you think are the insights you learned in scaling that business? I, um, yeah, it was very small when I joined Joseph. I mean, I think we were dealing with 25 hotels maybe. And I yeah. remember you sharing with me a growth metric goal. And I remember thinking, oh, we'll never, we'll never get to that. <laughs> but I, I think that it started first with, a, with um, establishing a trust with Marriott that they knew that they could count on us. And they knew that because we could scale with enough predictability. We could hit any volume of, of content needs that they provided. And so I think we proved that to them over and over again as a project would come up and, oh, oh no, now we need double the amount of hotels done. Because of the network of um, SEO content creators and consultants that we had built up, we were able to quickly source that work. Of course, no problem. We can get that done. Conversely, if uh, something changed and they only needed half of what they'd expected done, we were able to do that as well with no impact on cost. Uh, they were only paying by the piece for what they were getting. So I think that Marriott recognized that we were a business anxious and happy to support them and willing to be flexible so that they didn't have to be. Right. So, I mean, I think a key was finding the right writers because we had to go through a lot of writers to find the right. We did. Right we did. At this point, you've, you've, got a, you, you've got a great track record of finding and getting the right writers for everything. Um, what do you think uh, helped you establish trust with writers so that they'd be willing to stick around and write for, for clients when there were slow periods? And, um, and how, did you, how do you qualify them to make sure they, they, they fit? Well, we um, received, I, I think our best writers came from word of mouth. So writers that had worked with us for a period of time who, you know, knew of another writer that also worked for Hyatt or who had other experience in hospitality marketing. And so because of their great experience with Galileo, they were willing to recommend their, um, their coworkers. And then we would qualify them in a lot of cases with small pilot projects. So if we were um, convinced that they had the right tone and the right technicality and the right knowledge of SEO, um, we would allow them to, we would pay them to, to practice so that we could test, did it work? And particularly with Marriott, who have a lot of stipulations on what the content looks like, what you can say, what this, how bullets are formatted, that sort of thing. Um, it took a special kind of writer to be able to adhere to that sort of process. We have other clients who uh, really require a very creative spirit, spirit who want to do it a different way every time with a different tone and a different topic. And that was not the case with Marriott because of the need to scale and the need for a lot of consistency. So for Marriott in particular, it was important to find writers, not only with SEO experience, not only with hospitality experience, but the ability to adhere to consistent standards. Cool. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about how you managed to uh, manage, to create a process and manage that process to produce 40,000 pieces of content. <laughs>
Hello, this is Joseph Franklin McElroy back with the Wise Content Creates Well podcast with my guest, Aaron Miller. So Aaron, you know, in, um, in 2019, Galileo produced over 40,000 pieces of content in a year. And then when before the COVID break, we were doing almost about 4,000 pieces of content a month. So how do you create, create and, and manage a process? And what is that process for doing content on that scale, especially since it was all in 10-day SLA, service level agreement? Yeah, that, um, th- there's very little room for error in, in volume that high and deadlines that tight. But very early on, Joseph, we created a pipelining process, which is what we called it, where um, instead of having one team who followed the content along every step of the way, we developed teams for individual tasks. So instead of one person doing the keyword research, then writing the content, then uploading the content and managing revisions, we divided that into teams. Um, And uh, because of the way the work work timed itself uh, where you know, step one would occur and then you know two months later step two would occur and so on there was a, a natural progression to that we were able to scale the teams and prepare the teams for high volume or low volume periods based on what had you know we had just seen or the or the heads up that we received from the client um, so we said so many times to our team and to our client that predictability is key. We can produce as much volume as you need so long as we um, ha- have the predictability that we need. So we created processes with our client that g- gave them the opportunity to give us feedback and input about what we could expect down the road um, in terms of volume and uh, so that we could build a team or scale a team down as needed. Um, and so it required a lot of communication between us and the client, a lot of, um, a lot of tracking in place a lot of um, QA, a lot of late nights, really, for um, these freelancers who understand it's really feast or famine um, in this line of work. And so um, in the months where we were very busy, we asked a lot from our teams and they delivered because they had that mindset of, um, you know, this may not be the case next month. We may not have the same volume. So we always did our best to take good care of our teams, especially during times of, of famine. Um, but that, that sort of transparency and predict, predictability helped, helped a lot. I think some of the essential tools that you developed was one is surveying, which you brought from your previous experience, surveying and understanding the clients, and then really developing those trackers, you know, using Google Sheets, which is, a, you know, I didn't even appreciate until you started really using them to communicate with everybody across the process. Uh, and I think those are highly effective. You know, understanding uh, the client and then managing it through trackers that everybody can get access to. Agreed, agreed. I think we had a lot of, um, if we, you get burned by version control a time or two and you realize how vital Google Sheets yeah. is. But but you're exactly right. We worked with Marriott to create a, sort of an intake form so that without one-on-one conversations or phone calls or even emails with the um, ho- hotel level stakeholders, we could understand exactly what their goals were, uh, what was newly renovated, um, if they were targeting meet uh, people attending meetings or weddings or that sort of thing. So we could very easily understand that. And then we even subdivided our writers based on location. 
you know, who has written recently about this location? So there's some efficiencies there in, in doing the research or, you know, who prefers to write about airport hotels versus luxury resorts and that sort of thing. So an understanding of where our writers lived and what their life experience was allowed us to create efficiencies and in the end, uh, more, more wise content. And then we, you know, we started, um, uh, you know, we started actually automating that using technology to pull that data, which I think is the future, of, especially that surveying and understanding the client. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to really, um, you know, really understand the stakeholders with wise AI and data-based uh, mechanisms. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to lead in that development. So, um, yeah, so, um, you know, you were, you were really instrumental in helping us grow the business and you've hinted the uh, things about what you really liked about it. Um, but do you, I think you like the fact that we really take care of our people with other priorities. Can you talk to me about uh, that aspect of our culture? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Joseph. I think that um, what with, with all of the processes and, and clients and revenue that we've been fortunate enough to experience, what I'm most proud of is that we are a business that really understands what it means to be family friendly. Um, I know I've worked at places that say they are, but weren't. You, you may have too. And um, it's not only just family friendly that I'm proud of, but people with all sorts of other priorities, perhaps uh, their priorities to see the world or to take care of aging parents or young children or, um, or other passionate passion projects. And so um, we have built a business where people who with agency experience who have built a very strong career and then perhaps needed to step back or step all the way out and then back in for a period of time were able to come in and work and earn very fair wages at the hours that they could work while still supporting those other priorities. And as a mother of three young children, I think that I was in an ideal position to help create that because I knew what I would want. Um, and so we have the, the writers and the talent that have come through us have been in all sorts of, of those stages. Um, and with enough predictability, we've always been able to support them if they need to um, take, take care of those other commitments. Cool. I, I agree with you. It's, it's fundamental to I me. Mean, now with two twins of my own, I appreciate the fact that I can spend a lot of time with them. And I think that's, I think that the discussion in the, in the world today is about the gig economy you know, and the benefits of it, but there's a lot of criticism of this too. I mean, especially at the lower end of the scale where, you know, data and and uh, and information being collected by apps are, you know, essentially forcing people to work. But, you know, how do you think that the gig economy is um, gonna, is, is a sustainable economy? Do you, do, you, do you think that the situations like ours are important enough that it, it, it'll, it'll still exist? Well, I think it became especially important in March of this year um, that when we had to scale back and our clients had to scale back, um, it was impactful for all of us, most of us in, in a negative way. But the fact that we did not have full-time employees allowed us to stay afloat and now to gradually bring those consultants back into the mix. Um, so you know, I think that communication is key. Um, when we're clear with our consultants, and these are these are the expectations, these are the high volume times, these are the low volume times. It allows them to organize those other commitments in a way that they can um, do do as much or as little as they want. 
Um, and in our situation, we created a process where we pay the consultants by the, by the piece, by the, by the keyword or by the page or by the blog post. And so it really incentivizes those highly efficient consultants to, um, they can get a lot done. Um, so that, that is, we found that to be a, a more, um, more desirable situation, especially for efficient consultants to be paid by the product versus by the hour. I agree with you. I mean, I think that the, I, th- I, you know, I was a leading question because I think the gig economy, I'm, I'm political and I think the gig economy, you know, where it's trying to drive down prices, uh, is, is headed for, you know, having to do, uh, you know, full employment for those people that are driving. But I think the gig economy where it's based upon quality, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and dealing with uh, creativity on a large scale, that is going to be important to maintain that sort of gig economy approach. Um, but anyway, I want to um, thank you for coming on my show, our show. Uh, how do people reach you? Um, they can reach me through Galileo, Aaron.Miller at GalileoTechMedia.com. Sounds good. And I'll mention what Galileo Tech Media is. We provide award-winning, on-demand SEO and content marketing solutions to a global clientele. In an increasingly competitive and ever-evolving digital landscape, we help businesses scale and succeed by providing a suite of tactical and technical SEO solutions. Our proven methodologies take our partners to the top of the search engine result pages, improving their Google search rankings and driving traffic and all important conversions. Um, our flexibility and ability to scale is, is, is proved beneficial for both large companies and small. And I invite you to go to GalileoTechMedia.com to reach us and uh, see what we can help you achieve. To find out more about this podcast, there's two places you can go. You can go to facebook.com slash wise content creates wealth. Uh, there you will always see a live feed of this, uh, of this uh, podcast and uh, subsequently immediately available the, the recording. We also have a website for this called wisecontentcreateswealth.com where you can sign up for a newsletter dedicated just to wise content. I have another podcast called Gateway to the Smokies. It's on this network uh, uh, that comes on Tuesdays at 6. Uh, but this network is talkradio.nyc. And I encourage you to see lots of podcasts on this network, including the one preceding this uh, podcast called Jeremiah Fox and host, uh, uh, with the host Jeremiah Fox of the Entrepreneurial Web. Again, that's talkradio.nyc. Next week, we'll be talking about another AI-based tool for modifying and enhancing content. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much.